0: Good morning, family. How you doing? Excellent. Why don't you go ahead and grab your seats? Thanks for joining us in church. Who's enjoying the rain? Yeah, we are. Very good. It's a good day to be home watching Netflix, isn't it? But you're in church serving the Lord with gladness, so good on you. Good on you. I like to cook. How many fellow uh, chefs are in the room who likes to cook? Uh, I like to cook, but I'll tell you something that really disturbs my soul is, you know that feeling when you're knowing I'm going to go and begin my meal preparation processes and you walk in and the kitchen is an absolute mess? (laughs) To me, it just elicits a deep sigh of frustration. (sighs) A sigh. Think about a sigh. In fact, why don't you just let out a sigh now of relaxation? (sighs) See, there's different um, ways a sigh works, isn't there? There, There's... (sighs) there's, there's all sorts of different, well when I walk into the kitchen and I find that the kitchen is mess, I, great. It's like that in the rest of the home too, isn't it? Especially if you have little people in your house, if you have children in your house, then you just have to walk into a room and see their stuff lying somewhere to tap into a deep and meaningful, and it says so many things, doesn't it? Well, it says things you're not allowed to say out loud, doesn't it? It says words you're not allowed to say. I find as a parent, often there's a sigh for my kids. There's a sigh for my children's future well-being. Many of us in the room would know the pain of when your little people, if you've got children, they go to school and have a relational upset or they get bullied or something like that. And it just grips your heart with something that's very different to vocalise in language other than... One of my daughters, I won't use her name, please don't ask them, uh, she had an incredible learning difficulty when she was in primary school and was going to have to repeat for many, many years in a row. The school kept putting pressure on us, repeat her in school, repeat her this year, repeat her, don't let her go up the next grade. And she was really struggling with her literacy and numeracy and I didn't mind so much about that but I'd sit with her and doing her sight words and sit with her doing, doing her schoolwork in the evenings and she'd sit on my lap and she'd look up at me and she'd cry and she'd say, Dad, I'm stupid, aren't I? I'm dumb, aren't I, Dad? And almost everything in her life reflected back to that situation where whenever anything happened, it's because I'm dumb, isn't it? And it just elicited a deep sigh of compassion and grief in my heart. A sigh for wanting her to have a better life. A sigh for wanting her not to see herself that way. Some of you parents know what I'm talking about. A sigh for a friend. A friend has a bereavement. A friend has a surgery. Oh, God. Just a sigh that's articulate something we find difficult to put into words. Our lives are filled with deep sighs, aren't they? Deep sighs. Not just the sigh of relaxation when you get in a warm bath. Ah. The sigh of the rain right now washing the red dust off the roof of your car. Ah. Or you washed your car yesterday. Ah. <laughs> Our lives are filled with deep sighs. I think parents get it, it's the sigh of a mum sometimes, a mum just, ah, if only someone would do something else around this house. Do you know that one, mums? Ah, If only the kids would get this, if only somebody would lift a finger other than me. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, because for, for somebody who sighs in that, in that fashion, it's not so much the job, it's not the thing, it's like, okay, mum, what do you want me to do? It's more, well, I just want you to do something, because I want to know I'm not alone in this. It's the sigh of knowing someone's with you. Ah, I wish someone understood. Ah, I wish someone would help. Ah, I wish someone would cooperate. I wish someone appreciated everything I do around here. Ever let out one of those sighs? What about at work when you go into the lunchroom and no one's washed up the coffee cups? Ah. What about at our work when you go in and Mez has washed up the coffee cups? Ah. (laughs) Lovers get it. Lovers understand a sigh. The sigh of deep desire. <sighs> if only she remembered our wedding anniversary. <sighs> if only you actually knew my favourite food. And instead, you cooked the thing I hate most in the universe. <laughs> it's not a loving gesture. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a loving gesture. <sighs> if only you heard the hints I dropped on Christmas shopping. If only you saw the catalogs I left circled before my birthday. The deep sigh of desire. (laughs) But it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it's a sigh that says, if only I didn't have to spell things out. If only I didn't have to tell you what I wanted. You know, if you love me, if you care for me, if we're really, really close, then sometimes I'm just like, wow. And and, and people who are close to each other, they pick up on the sigh, don't they? They interpret the sigh. And then when they really love each other, it's so wonderful and it brings so much joy when the sigh is acted upon accurately. And well, when it's not, there's pain, isn't there? When it has to be spelt out, it cheapens it. When it has, Will someone please do these dishes? Oh, okay, Dad. <laughs> See, it means something different. The dishes might get done, but it means something different under those circumstances. Don't worry, Dad, we got this. You, you're going to cook soon. You go out there and relax and watch cricket and we'll do the dishes. Oh, my gosh, I've died and gone to heaven. <laughs> it's a sigh when, when you don't have to spell it out, when your needs are anticipated by people close to you. The lonely get the sigh of desire, don't they? You ever felt loneliness? It's a horrible thing. It's a sigh, if only I had someone close, if only someone was near, if only I had a friend, if only I had someone to, to, to know what it was I needed and wanted in life, someone to love and be loved by, someone to, to swap hopes, fears and dreams and expectations by, loneliness is horrible. You know, the tragedy of loneliness is the absence of someone to hear and understand the deep sighs of our hearts, which brings me to God. Do you ever wonder what God's deep desires are? You ever wonder what the deep sigh of God's heart is in any given situation? What God longs for? Well, I've got his holy word and we've got the laws of Moses and we yeah I I know you have the commands. I know we have his explicit writings in the pages of scripture. Let me ask you something. I'm going to do a poll. Men in the room, last time your significant female other said to you, I wish you'd buy me flowers, or you never buy me flowers, or maybe she said, you never buy me flowers. Did you go out and buy flowers that day for her? Okay, let me ask the women in the room, if that happened, do those flowers mean much? Some of you, it's been so long, you're like, I'll take it anyway, I can get it past." or... <laughs> um, this is what I've found. When, when a woman has to ask for flowers, don't buy the flowers the same day she asks for it. You know, when she drops in, oh, I wish my husband buy me flowers. Don't buy the flowers that day. Wait three weeks till she's over it and then surprise her. It's in the, it's in the freedom of the intimate act. It's not in the obligation, is it? if I buy you flowers because you ask for it, those flowers don't mean anything. When I buy them because I love you and I know that you'd love it, I know it would bless your heart, and then I do it, isn't it great, Danielle, all those times I do it? (laughs) On Father's Day last year. No, what day was it? What's that other day where we love each other? Oh, Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day. Sorry, I only had in mind the most important day of the year. We had There's this other one called Valentine's Day, and on Valentine's Day, we, it was a Sunday, so we had our church services, I was hanging out with people, and doing all that stuff, and then I realised, ah, oh, I kind of forgot to get Danielle flowers, I'm sure she'd like some. You know, she's humble, she didn't get me anything, by the way, but that's a beside the point, something totally different, I thought as a loving husband, you know what, I'm not waiting for her to ask for flowers, I'm going to do something, so I did what any intelligent husband does, did a last-minute dash to Coles and woolies and every servo in town and the, the florist was shut, it was like 6pm at night or something like this uh, and no one had any flowers. might have been earlier because I found that Kmart was open and I went to Kmart and I found the gift to the desert, plastic arboreal items. And there was all these plastic flowers and fronds and I bought a nice big glass vase and I bought a bunch of plastic fake flowers and I arranged them symmetrically in the vase and it was uh, magnificent. And I took it home and I presented it to Danielle and my daughter said, Dad, those flowers are fake. I can't believe you brought Mum fake flowers on Valentine's Day. And I said, girls, they are not fake flowers. They are undying flowers. Like my love for your mother. (laughs) Can I tell you something? Barry White was playing in our house the whole rest of the evening because unelicited, my bride got flowers. I encourage you to do what I just thought of then and turn your phones on silent. I just got a text message from someone. Thanks very much. Our lives are filled with deep sighs. This is what I've learned about being a believer that we get so used to wanting God to hear the desires of our hearts, right? There's even a scripture about it. Oh, God, how many times in in prayer have you uttered a wordless sigh? God, if you'd heal me. God, if you'd do something in my life. But how often do we stop and think, but what about God's heart? What about God's deep desires? What about the things that God yearns? and longs for in a given situation. Wouldn't it change our relationships if when we were dealing with someone, we're like, God, what is your sigh for this person? God, what is in your heart for this person? How can I be a vehicle of your blessing? How can I be a vehicle of your grace? How can I be a vehicle of your love and and tap into your heart? But what is it that you long for, for this person, God? And how do I play a role in being a vehicle of it? I've been consumed by this thought in my prayer life lately. What if it's part of my life's all-consuming purpose and worship, to hear the sighs of God's heart and pour myself out to give it to him. Changes your relationship with God, doesn't it? Well, do I have to quit drinking? Well, what's God's sigh for my life? Am I allowed to have that boyfriend? Am I allowed to have that girlfriend? Well, what's God's desire for my life? What is the deep sigh of God? Why do I need a rule for something when I can go to God and seek his face on it? God, what's your deep desire? In 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's a story, and the story is about David and his mighty men gathering at the cave of Adullam, him and his mighty men. And it's an incredible story because it's a story that we are told at the end of David's life. David has uttered his final words and then the author of 2 Samuel, after David says his final dying words, the author gives us a couple of stories at the end of his life. It's a re a little reminder of everything about David, David's life. This story that we're going to read in a moment starts in the cave of Adullam the cave of Adullam. The cave of Adullam was David's hiding place in the Judean wilderness when he was hiding on the run from Saul who persecuted him and hunted him down for 40 years because he did not want David, who was anointed to king, to replace Saul, the king, after the people of Israel. And so he hunted him down and David hid in the caves and in the rocks and and slunk from town to town, going, trying to avoid capture and death. And little by little, as David made his home in this cave at Adullam, you can go there today and you can find that that mountain range is dotted and studded with little caves, perfect for hiding people. And David began to hide there. And it says over time that 300 people drifted to hide with David in those caves. 300, the poor, the disenfranchised, the victims of injustice, some of them even shady criminals. And they hid and they gravitated towards David and it was all the poor, all the disenfranchised, all those who had nothing, all those who were no one, all those at the bottom of the power and the bottom of the social pecking order. And they gravitated towards David. But what is funny is over time, something happened. And as they gathered and as they plotted and as they trained and as they fellowshiped under David's leadership, under David's true anointed kingship, the the, the bunch of, of, let's just say, the hopeless in the cave became the hopeful in the cave. And they were fashioned into a group called David's mighty men. And they went from being poor and disenfranchised and beat up victims and victims of injustice and they became this mighty army that helped deliver Israel from the tyrannous reign of Saul on the one hand and the attacks of the Philistines on the other hand. Israel was getting inundated with these Viking type people from across the sea, Philistines they were called. Philistine is a, an Aramaic word which means sea peoples, people from across the sea. You could think about them like the Vikings. They come they come in their boats, they pull up on our shores and they maraud and they rape and they pillage and they slaughter steal they burn down our cities and they capture our women and they take our grain and they leave us starving and for hundreds of years the people of Israel were victim to the uh, marauding attacks of the Philistines but David and his 300 mighty men in the cave of Adullam were fashioned by God into an army that completely changed and transformed them that they became the army that would deliver the people of Israel and push back the Philistines and grant them their freedom it's an amazing thing isn't it to think about gather together in the cave, but the cave is where you change. Sounds like a great description for a church, doesn't it? We come together, we're from all walks of life, we've got all our different testimonies, our different histories, our different problems, our our different faults and our strengths and our weaknesses, but together, as we fellowship and together, as we worship and together, as we train and together, as we gather around King Jesus, we are transformed, we become totally different cave dwellers over time. And we become people... Who are mighty We become people capable of exploits. And this is what the author of Samuel reminds us after David had uttered his last words, the chapter chapter 23 of Second Samuel. In verse eight, a narrative is formed. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. By the way, if you're expecting a child in the room, then there's some good options in this list for how you might name your forthcoming offspring. Josheb <coughs> Bathshebeth, a Techemonite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eliezer, the son of Dodai, the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pazdamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eliezer, he stood his ground and he struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. What a great image, hey? Your hand does freeze to whatever you cling to the longest, doesn't it? It's how we form habits. He's froze to his sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi the Hararite. And when the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. They were fearsome, these Philistines. Who could blame them? They're scary. But Shammah, he took his stand in the middle of the field and he defended it. And he struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. See how many times where you have in a narrative like this, a human actor being used by God to bring about a great victory? It doesn't make the person the hero of the story, it makes God the hero of the story. God uses His people, God raises people up in the cave of Adullam and then they perform exploits which end up being the work of God. In this story, it's interesting because Shammah is related to the Hebrew word for presence, presence. That's why you, you know, I am the Lord who is with you, Yahweh Shammah, the Lord who is present. So Shammah practices his presence in the field. Everyone else is absent, but he's present and he's going to stay and fight. That's cool. Verse 13 takes a turning point, it narrows the field from the exploits of these mighty warriors to one amazing story which the author of 2 Samuel has chosen to tell us at the end of David's life. Assuming we know, assuming we know David's story, assuming now we've just gone through the the news headlines of the mighty men and the amazing things they did and the breathtaking acts of bravery and gallantry, the breathtaking exploits that they performed to set people free from slavery. then he says this in verse 13, during harvest time, everybody say harvest time, harvest time in this part of the world is one of the warmer times of the year, it's one of the warmer times of the year, it's hot, it's sweaty, things are happening, it's just like uh, this time of year in Alice Springs maybe, the weather starts warming up, during harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, the narrator knows, Expecting that we know the story. Oh, Adullam! Wow! They came. They came as poor. They came as victims. But now, look—they come as chiefs. They come as warriors. They came powerless, but now, look. There's a new story. They're meeting with David at the cave of Adullam, and this time, they're powerful. They were there with David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Ah, okay they're back to their old tricks, hiding in the cave so they don't get killed, fleeing from the Philistines, plotting their plans, making their battle plans, hiding in the cave like all of those years ago. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. Everybody say Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Where did David grow up? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the city of David's childhood. Bethlehem is David's home turf. Bethlehem is the town that he was raised in and the town that he was reared in. But now look what, we know something. These marauders, these mixture, imagine if you're trying to imagine a Philistine, imagine like an outlaw biker gang crossbred with a bunch of Vikings turning up in the ancient world. They'd fled from across the Mediterranean, fleeing volcanoes and wars and famines and all sorts of stuff, got in their boats and landed on the shores of of this Mediterranean Sea in the Fertile Crescent and then went around trying to get rid of all the population so they could have the land. Only they were nomadic, which means they didn't want to stay and build in your city. They'd come, eat all the grain, take all the women, butcher all the cattle, and and then burn everything else and move on to the next town. So there's nothing but destruction in the wake of the Philistines. But here at Bethlehem, David's hometown, where David grew up, where David learnt to play the harp, where David learnt that the Lord was his shepherd, where David would gather every day before he went out with his family and the shepherds of the town and they'd spread out into the wilderness and then at sunset every day, come back and water their sheep at the well near Bethlehem and come back and and, and relax in the cool of the afternoon. David spent his whole boyhood there. And now a Philistine garrison has taken over Bethlehem. Wow, a garrison. Okay, okay. Look, a company, a a platoon. Scary, but we might be able to deal with it. But a garrison, a garrison is like the regional HQ, man. A, A garrison is where all the companies and all the platoons and the commanding officer, maybe the king or the or the chieftain warlord, that's there. He's there. All gathered there, and that means this is now a major administrative regional command center for all of the Philistines in the area. Well. That's a shame when it's your hometown, wouldn't you agree? And David and his mighty men are plotting back in the cave of Adullam. Hey, we've faced battles before, but we've got a big one on our hands. Hey, hey we've seen God set us free before, but now we've got some work to do. We've seen God use us before, man. Remember that time I fought by myself? Remember the time my hand froze to the sword? Remember the time where even everyone retreated, but I wasn't going? Well, it's time to stir up the mighty men because we're going to go and we're going to try to liberate Bethlehem now. There's a garrison there. And uh, they're hiding in the cave. Auspiciously plotting what's going on. Then I mean, listen to this, verse 15. And David longed. Everybody say longed. In, in the Hebrew, this word longed is somewhere between a deep sigh and a vocalized utterance. It really means to utter, to, to mutter, to sow. It's It's like, oh, David, oh, he longed. He longed for water. And he said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. A well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, to understand what's going in the story, you have to sort of paint the picture. This is harvest time. This is the hot time of year. David's in a cave. He's been slinking around. You know, if you've seen, you can Google area. Um, you know, Google uh, Google Earth it and see the terrain of this area. It's a lot like this part of the world. Less trees, less shrubby. There's nothing growing out here. These are rocks and dust and mountain ranges. And if there is anything growing, it's scraggly. And especially in the desert part, in the hot time of the year, there's no streams. The wadis aren't flowing with water. This is dry. This is dusty. This is hot. And it's harvest time that makes it quite a warm time of year and David after skulking and slinking through with his men and his mighty men they they, they liaise at the cave of Adullam and oh man they've been running they've been dodging maybe they've come from a battle we don't know and David says, oh man, I really want to drink of water. But we have to understand that within the text is something going on that is beyond just David being physically thirsty and here's what it is. In the ancient world if you go to the area the area of Adullam that place there through the desert is studded with caves and caverns and it was the practice, and archae- the archaeological literature is actually quite funny in this respect, it was the practice of, uh, of ancient uh, desert nomads going through the area to find those caves and to, every time they went past stash some water inside the very back of those caves. Get in the cave as deep as you can and leave a jar of water there. Leave a jar of water and just drape an animal skin over the top of it so it's kind of like got some protection, you know what I'm saying. How does your swampy smell when you turn it on for the first time of the year? Bit stinky? Or do you do the right thing and you get the service guy out to resurrect it every January or something like that? Okay, musty. What happens to water that's just sitting around? Ever left your espresso machine for six months and then come back to make a coffee and found out, oh, it's a green smoothie? (laughs) So what is famous in the archaeological records is these jars of water in the caves around the Adullam area. They were life-saving. They were life-saving because if you're coming through the desert and there's no water anywhere else, it's probably reliable that you could slip off and hide in one of those caves and go right to the back and find yourself a jar of water, a pitcher of water. And you could remove the cover and drink it, but here's the bad news you're in the desert. It is the only water source in the desert, in that area, and that means that everything wanting water is investigating where the water is, you know what I'm saying? So let me just um, do a quick geography lesson with you. You're in the desert, and and there's other creepy, crawly things in the desert, isn't there? And where do they go in the heat of the day? They need somewhere dark dark and cool to hide. And if they want water, where are they going to find water if they slip and slither and creep and crawl into the cave. They're going to find it maybe stashed at the back of the cave. And this is quite funny. If you, uh, if you do the history research on it, the archaeological records are quite humorous because they talk about um, how all of these pitchers of water are found that have just filled up with beetles and bugs and all sorts of creeping and crawling things. Crawl up the side of the pitcher and slip in under the animal skin, which is supposed to be protective, and then drink their fill of water, and then realize, I can't get out now, and they stay there. And so if you're one of those poor unfortunates that goes and finds a pitcher of water at the very back of the cave, then the first thing you do is you take off the animal skin. The second thing you do is you scoop out as many as the dead beetles and bugs and flies and scarabs or whatever it is there. You, you get rid of them all. Then you pick up that pitcher and you drink deeply. But when you drink, and it's hilarious, this was recorded from posterity. <laughs> when you drink, you've got to clench your teeth and strain out all the floaty things just sounds advertising, doesn't it? Strain out the beetles, spit out, spit out the wings of bugs and the dead cockroaches and whatever they've done when they're floating around in there, you get the picture. So you have to understand, the water in the cave is life-saving, but I tell you what, it ain't going to be your first choice for a drink, is it? It's your first choice when you're in a life-or-death situation in the desert. By the way, that's a lot like us, isn't it? when we're thirsty, we get an appetite for all sorts of dead stuff that we uh, probably shouldn't be drinking. And so, David has a yearning. Now, listen to the yearning that David has. Oh, man, if only someone would get me a drink of water from the well near Bethlehem. There's so much in that. It's not just David that David wants water, but he does want water. He wants water because he's drinking bug water. He's drinking beetle juice over there. If only someone would get me. It's an aside. He doesn't issue orders, although he's a king. He doesn't give a command, although he's a great commander. He doesn't say, right, boys, you, you, and you get to Bethlehem and give me a drink of water. He doesn't do that. He just has his heart overtaken. And what is his heart overtaken with? A deep longing. He longs. He sighs. Oh, I wish. And what's he longing for? He's longing for that water, not just any water. If anyone would just get me any type of the closest water. No, 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 this is the water from the well. The well water from Bethlehem. Think about what David's doing. Oh man, I remember when I was a kid getting up in the morning, drawing water with my mum. She said, David, don't fall in the well. I don't no mum. And then later on my dad, David, don't throw anything in that. Stop chucking stuff in the well, David. You'll pollute it for everyone. This is our life source. This is our water source. Okay, dad. As David becomes a man going out to the field with his sheep and then bringing them back and meeting maybe his other family members, the other shepherds around Bethlehem, the other artisans in the cool of the day in these type of locations, in this type of city, everybody before the sun goes down, when they've done their day's work, would gather and refresh at the well. You see, David spent 40 years running, and he spent 40 years fleeing, and he spent 40 years homeless, and spent 40 years dwelling in a cave. And he's really saying, oh man, if only I could go back to those good old days. David's heart is overtaken with a sense of nostalgia. His heart is overtaken with a vision of a better life, with a life in a different time, when it was less complex, and and it wasn't so miserable, and life was good. Life was shalom. Life was peaceful. There was no Philistines back then. We would just sit there, and we'd just... Drink from the well in the cool of the day, and everything in David is longing, longing for a different world, longing for a vision of a better place, longing for peace and shalom, and, and, and that, that, that sunset cool drink. And he just lets it slip out. Oh man, if only I could have a drink from there. And there's so much in David's sigh the sigh of the king. So his friends around him they respond, they take a curious course of action. Let's have a look in verse 16. Verse 15, David longed for the water and said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors, they broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Jerusalem and carried it back to David. Okay, okay, okay. When you read Scripture... Bible writers expect that you kind of know the stories, because before they were written down, they were shared in community extensively. So, they kind of expect you to go, yeah, 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 I got this one, I know exactly what's happening, I'm picturing the movie in my mind. And then when we read it, we just read a sentence as a throwaway sentence. oh yeah, they just went and got, you know, David wants some water, so they just went and got him a drink of water, and that was kind of nice. Think about what they did. David gives no command, David gives no order, David issues, issues no edict, doesn't write down military marching orders, he just says, man, if only I could get water from there. So three of his mighty warriors, they heard the sigh of the king's heart, they registered the sigh of the king, and they love him, and they're close to him, and this is the cave of Adullam, where all of their lives were transformed, and they hear their commander-in-chief say, oh man, if only, and they said, if only, well my job is to listen to the sigh of the king, and make sure that the king gets his sighs fulfilled through me. And so So what do they do? They run from the cave of Adullam to the garrison at Bethlehem, 20 kilometres in the heat of harvest time. And when they get there, there's a garrison. It's a garrison. It's not a troop. It's not a platoon. It's not a company. It's a garrison. This is a major administrative center for the military invader. And what do they do? Well, it says there's three of them. So can you see in the story, they've trotted through the desert. I don't know. Maybe they slunk from rock to rock or tree to tree, but they've gone. Immediately they left. They heard what the commander in chief said and they left. And what do they do? They get to the garrison and three by three, they fight their way through. Imagine the Philistines. Imagine them rubbing their hands together. Yeah, it's been a while since we've had an easy victory it's been a while since we've had an easy battle wait a minute aren't those guys wearing the marks of David's army that means they're Davidians oh man those are Hebrews those are Israelites let's get them and you can imagine them going out as they see this ragtag bunch coming towards them and then being surrounded by Philistines and what do they do they have a battle and they have a fight imagine them shoulder to shoulder back to the back you guys face that way I'll face this way let's go and they fight their way to the very well at Bethlehem imagine it I've just come a 20K journey and I've got a battle that is facing overwhelming odds when I get there. But I'm with my mates and we're following the the desires, the sigh of the king. It's worth it. It's worth every sacrifice. We're back to back. We're shoulder to shoulder. We're standing here and now we're at the well. The king said he wanted to drink from the well. We made it to the well. It's amazing. And imagine two of them going, okay, scissors, paper, rock. One of us has to drop our sword and shield and pick up a bucket and start drawing water from the well unprotected. One of us has to trust the other two because the other two, they're going to keep fighting back to back. No, there's my mate right there, standing right over the top of him, hacking and cutting and protecting and defending and covering. And he's trusting, I'm going to drop my sword. I'm going to drop my shield. I'm going to draw water from the well. Then I'm going to tip that well. I'm going to decant it into an animal skin. And I'm not going to spill a drop because this is for my king. Then I'm going to get it, and I'm going to pick it up. Okay, guys, I got the thing. Let's go. And then he's carrying his thing. Don't forget your sword. Wait, this is, oh, my mobile phone. And he's picking it up. And then they have to retreat and survive. And then they have to make the 20-kilometre retreat back to the cave at Adullam without spilling that precious water. Well, I'd say there's blood and sweat and tears and fatigue And people think if that's you, there's some psychotic trail runners and stuff in the church. I do not understand you people and your 20-kilometer trail things out in the desert. These guys understand you. They understand you that I heard the sigh of the king and I thought nothing of pouring out my life to answer the sigh of the king. it's interesting, they fight their way back, they get back to the cave, they get an audience with David, hey, where have you guys been? I've been trying to get you on the phone. Boss, we heard what you said, you said you wanted a drink and we've got a surprise for you, here's a drink of water from the the well outside Bethlehem. Listen to this, second half of verse 16, but David refused to drink it. David refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink it? Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. David's an interesting leader and he's a good example to us, to me as a leader, to you in your leadership roles. He's a good example because David understood something in that moment, imagine that, the sweat, the blood, the tears, the sacrifice, the frenetic use of adrenaline, the fatigue, the heat, we didn't spill a drop and David goes, I ain't drinking any of that and he pours it out, actually it's not just, he doesn't just tip it out, no way, what do you got, should be back on your post, it says he pours it out before the Lord in Hebrew, This phrase, he poured it out before the Lord, it's a a technical phrase. A technical phrase means it really means something more than just, on David's ah, It means David had a ceremony of sacrifice. To pour something out before the Lord is a technical term for offering a sacrifice to God. David sees the labour of his mighty men not as something that he should benefit from, not as something that enriches his organisational leadership. He sees it as what it is. This is worship to Yahweh. Far be it from me, the king, to ever drink the worship that belongs to Yahweh. What a heart. What a heart. David's saying, you guys might have thought you did this for me, but you did this for God, and only God is worthy of that. See, that's the limitation leaders have to put on ourselves, isn't it? That actually there's some things only God is worthy of. And we shouldn't try to get it ourselves. A little while ago, a wonderful man in our church came and said, Hey, Pastor Ben, I just want to bless you. Can I may I was thinking I could come around every couple of weeks and mow your lawn for you. Tempting. Generous. What an awesome offer. But this scripture was ringing in the back of my mind. I'd say, look, I'm so blessed and thrilled that you would think about doing that for your poor old pastor. But actually, in our church, we're not... We're not building something where you're serving me. We're not building, like, a, a feudal society where, like, I'm a king, and so, you know, you're going to do my lawn, and you're going to do my car, and actually, I'll tell you my favourite food, and you can cook it for me. Except you, don't yeah? uh, And I said, look, I, I'm thrilled that you would think of that, but here's a better idea, here's a better idea. What if you found a way that really served the kingdom of God and invested exactly the same amount of energy labour doing that? And then, fair enough, my lawn might not get mowed, but I bet you God's kingdom would advance. You know, you and I, when we're leaders, it's never our job to drink the sacrifice of the people of God. That is their worship. And you and I, when we come near to King Jesus and we hear the desires of his heart, we should always bear in mind, effort's not just effort, fighting's not just fighting, fighting a battle, creating an exploit, winning a victory. That's worship we pour out before Jesus, isn't it? And this is what I love about this story, it moves my heart and it challenges me as a disciple. If I'm so close to God that I hear the desires of his heart, imagine the battles we could win that end up looking like worship to the king of kings in heaven. But I've also found that the further away from God I am, the more rules and commands I need. Am I allowed to, am I allowed to drink? Am I allowed to have that boyfriend? Am I allowed to have that girlfriend? Am I allowed to go there? Am I allowed to wear this? Am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed to watch that? Am I allowed to do this? As if our faith is all rules and regulations, and now that I'm walking with God, I've got my list of all of my thou shalt nots, and I better make sure I'm not doing all the shalt nots. But actually, the closer I get to Jesus, the less I need a thou shalt not, and the more I know the sigh of the heart of God. You know, I've often found with, with prophecy, with people, people always, oh, can you pray for me? Can you get a word for me or whatever? One of the things I've often found is it's incredibly easy as a person of God to pray with someone and go, okay, God, what is your longing for this person? What is the sigh of your desire for this person? That should be the only way you ever pray for somebody. Holy Spirit, speak to me. What is Jesus' sigh of desire for this person right now? What I love in our church, especially Sundays, but stuff happens all through the week, is the way people minister and serve each other, knowing I'm actually not doing it for you. I'm doing it because I'm responding to the sigh of the King. You know, someone who welcomes you to church, like knowing that loving and smiling and greeting every person is a register of the sigh of God, that they would be included in God's family, that's a different way to welcome, isn't it? Standing in church and worshipping Jesus and lifting my hands, God, you are the King of kings. It's different when I understand that the sigh of God is that people would know the joy of being related to Him and see Him for who He really is. And when our drummer He's on stage thumping those skins. He's not thumping skins. He's registering the sigh of God that worship would be rhythmical. It's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. I reckon our barista out there, what they're really doing is they're saying, the sigh of God smells like espresso. And we want to pour it out for people. Can I get an amen in the house? I'm, I'm challenged for us to be a people governed by legislation and rules and do's and don'ts. What do I have to do? Just tell me what I have to do. No, see, that's the same as my wife saying, buy me flowers. Okay, fine, I'll buy you flowers. Is it okay if I don't buy you flowers, honey? Fine. Brothers, when your wife says fine, it does not ever mean fine. When your wife says fine, it means run for your life pack a bag, go to the doghouse, do it. Fine, it doesn't mean it. But when I'm close to someone and I register the size of their heart, I get swept up in the joy. I could give them what they long for. I can give them what they're yearning for. And David yearning for water and his mighty men say, we understand because we are close and we've been formed and fused together in the cave of Adullam, so I'm going to give you the water you want for. And David says, well, that is what worship is. I'm challenged to be the type of disciple that hears the sigh of the heart of King Jesus and responds, not because I have to. There's a revelation for the Christian life. Are you ready for it? Never I have to, but always I get to. I get to. Our children have grown up in a ministry home. Not always. I wasn't always a pastor. So things changed when I became a pastor because our work and church rhythms were joined together instead of separate. And I remember one time, um, I won't name my child because she's sitting next to Danielle, and so um, I remember her one time, just when she was real young, she'd just crossed over to being a teenager. You know the teenager age, your kids aren't cute anymore at that, at that age. Um, they, and she says, Dad, do we have to go to church tomorrow? Dad, do we have to go to church tomorrow? Her, 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 hey, baby, we don't have to, we get to. We get to worship Jesus together. We get to serve God together. We get to study the word together. Do I have to love my neighbour? I get to love my neighbour. Or do I have to reach out? I get to reach out. See, when we hear the sigh of the king, things move from being I have to to I get to. It moves from being thou shalt not to. I can do all things through him who gives me strength it's a different way to live isn't it? I can I can love my neighbor you know for me it was a revelation I can get off the drugs I can get off the booze I, I didn't even know that was the rule so can I tell you something I smoked quite a lot of weed after I got saved no one told me you weren't supposed to do it but the closer the closer I got to the king it became a matter of transformation I didn't need a rule thou shalt not smoke marijuana I got closer to the heart of the king and the sigh of the king was, you need a sober mind. You've got to be fully yourself. You've got to stop ingesting and smoking and snorting and drinking all these things that change your state of mind because I want to make you whole and you are than you you've ever been before because I've got exploits for you and you can do all things in Christ who gave you strength. I could get off my addictions and no one ever told me I had to. But I came near the sigh of the king that transformed me so I got to. The closer... I am to Jesus, the less I need rules and commands. The further I am away from Jesus, the more I need laws and commands."